you know, how we manage the landscape is important. Yes. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, when I say we're seeing, you know, more fire, more impact from fire, mm -hmm. climate change is part of the reason. The other part is humans, okay? Right. Yeah. How we manage the <laughs> landscape or, or don't manage the landscape. Arguably, climate change is also humans. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They, yeah, we're, we're the... The source for all this problem. Um, <laughs> hopefully, the solution as well. Yeah. Once we get going on it. Hey everyone, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. I'm Matthew Kristoff. On this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Today's podcast was, again, a really enjoyable one for me. I got to speak to a gentleman by the name of Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan has a long history of doing fire research, wildfire research, uh, all kinds of different things regarding fire. Uh, currently, Mike Flanagan is a professor with the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta. He is also the research director for the Canadian Partnership for Wildland Fire Science, also known as Canada Wildfire, which he talks about later in the show. Uh, yeah, all kinds of crazy background in regards to fire. He knows his stuff. He's one of the guys you want to talk to. Uh, he calls himself the fire guy. Uh, it's, it's a suited name, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, it was an awesome conversation. So... I got to speak to him about a podcast series that he did with CBC called World on Fire. World on Fire was a great overview of the current situation we live in in regards to wildland fire and how it's different from the past and how it's going to change going forward and also the human aspect. It was it was really great. I definitely recommend checking out World on Fire if you have the chance. So well done. On this episode of Your Forest, I brought him on to talk more about the future to try to summarize up how did we get to this situation where fire is so rampant on the landscape um climate change is a big part of it and you know human interaction um is another part of it and i wanted to talk to him about how do we go forward how do we learn to live with fire in a way that we understand it and we're not always afraid of it even though yeah it can it can burn down homes and communities and needs to be have, we need to have a healthy fear of it, but also we need to understand that there's a lot of benefits that come with it. Our forest is fire dependent. We need fire for it to exist. Ecologically, it's, it's, it's always been that way. And we need to allow it to take place where it can, where it's not putting you know, infrastructure and lives at risk. And talking about that future. Um, in the past, we did a lot of just a fire happen. We suppressed it and that was it. And so we ended up having a lot of unburnt area compared to apparently the, you know, the natural norm pre-colonization. So I wanted to talk to him about how do we, what do we want the forest to look like? What are we aiming for when it comes to changing fire management? And how do we get public perception on the right side to understand that and allow us to do the right thing? So yeah, it was a great conversation. You guys are really going to love it. Mike's awesome. He's a wealth of knowledge and I couldn't have asked for a better person to come on and speak about this issue of learning to live with fire and the current new paradigm we find ourselves in when it comes to wildfire. You guys are going to enjoy it. We we did this on his porch, uh, you know, because of COVID, all that 
type of stuff. I didn't want to do remote recording if I could avoid it. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there, you can hear a little bit of background noise or some vehicles going by. At one point, his cat was scratching at the door to get out. <laughs> so it was uh, it was a good conversation. Well, it was, it was a lot of fun. This episode is brought to you by Wes Fraser, Greenlink Forestry, and Damaged Timber. Damaged Timber is the only one really selling anything. And uh, you can go to their website, damagedtimber.com, and put in your Forest Tenant checkout. You get 10% off. They're selling super cool stuff. They're making wood products like butcher boards and charcuterie boards out of wildfire burnt wood. Pretty cool. That's really awesome. You can have wood that was literally in a wildfire in your kitchen. It's cool. Check them out, damagedtimber.com. And uh, yeah. Without any further messing around, here's Mike and I. We're talking all about wildfire, the future of, what we can expect, and how we can learn to live with it. Here we go. Let's just start off. I like to talk about yourself, your job, what you how you went down this road of fire and what is it about this work being the fire guy that uh that just makes you makes you happy what brings you pride why do you get up every morning to do this well there's, there's a lot of questions there matt yeah it's all <laughs> you, you summarize it however you like <laughs> so uh i've been interested in fire since as young as i can remember and weather is my first birthday yeah i had a birthday cake with a candle and I was fascinated by the, the flame. I stuck my finger in it. <laughs> and most kids would withdraw it. I kept my finger there and just started bawling, but I would not move my finger until my parents moved my... Maybe I wasn't that bright, but I I was just mesmerized by flame. I played with matches, uh, <laughs> spent summers in southern Alberta. And uh, in those days, we burned our trash. I think it's still allowed in many rural communities to this day. And to do that, you played with matches. And one day I played with matches on a very windy day. Uh, and I had a little trouble with a fire. <laughs> fortunately, uh, some adults came along and put that fire out before it burned the town down. I'm not going to mention the name of the town. <laughs> Run a town on a rail. Uh, then I was a, I'm also very interested in weather. And fascinated by storms, so I wanted to be a forecaster. Okay, went to university, uh, took physics uh, and math, and then took the training with Environment Canada at the time, and worked as a forecaster. And I was doing a lot of fire weather forecasts. Uh, Environment Canada at the time was responsible for fire weather. Did fire weather courses, did fire weather research, and a colleague there said there was a job opening in Petawawa and uh, for a fire position. And it was regular day shift, Monday to Friday. As a forecaster, you work shift work. Yeah. And it was a crazy shift. It was a, a day shift, a double shift, and then an evening shift, then two nights, and then three off. So you're just, your body just... It's a mess. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was a very attractive opportunity. I was successful, moved to Petawawa, and then went back for some more education, got my master's and PhD, and been studying fire with the Canadian Forest Service until about 2012 when I retired. Okay. But not from work. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm too young. 
well, I don't want to retire, retire. Uh, I love my job. I'm I'm very fortunate. I love my job. Right. So what kind of jobs out there that is kind of similar to being a research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service? And university professor is an obvious choice. And there was a job opening. I applied and was successful and came to University of Alberta in 2010 and worked as an embed CFS employee, Canadian Forest Service employee, for a couple of years and then was hired by the university. Oh, and really? I've been there ever since. And it's very similar. I'm doing research on fire, weather, climate change. And, uh, you know, in terms of what makes me really happy, um, you know, as one ages, one thinks about legacy. And while publications are important, it's about training the next generation of fire people. That's where, and I've had lots of great students and uh, they're employed all over the world now right. and with, you know, fire management agencies, Parks Canada, New Zealand, Canadian Forest Service has hired a great number of them. So that's where, you know, I, I see training these uh, young, bright students. Well, some of them aren't so young. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, Cordy. Uh, uh, so that's that's where I am, and that's what, you know, I'm just fascinated by fire and weather, and uh, I get paid to do it. So yeah. this is a pretty... Pretty nice place. It's a pretty perfect spot. Yeah, yeah for is. sure. That's awesome. Yeah, it's well, it's funny. I think we all have that time as a child, right, where you go through that s stage of playing with matches or whatever. I have a similar story of gasoline and matches and water bottles, and that didn't go well. It's a similar similar ending. <laughs> Hairspray. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that, right? Uh, but yeah, it, it's just I guess it is. Fire just is like a. It's an attractive thing i guess it's, it's elemental it's, it's yeah. one of the key elements of earth you know? yeah the force of nature right yeah. like it's just and if we think of civilization where would we be without fire for cooking for smelting combustion engine i mean you know much of our life and existence is based on fire in one form or another yeah no absolutely yeah and even going back as far as just like the world in general as like a, as a natural place, right? Like as far back as Pangea, we've had pine trees, which have always been dependent on fire to some degree. So there's obviously been fire for a long time. <laughs> so, so one of my lines, I have lots of lines. One of my lines is for fire, you need three ingredients. And whether you're in Australia, the Arctic, Alberta, California, you need these three and fuel, ignition, and weather. You get all three, and you have a fire. And there's an ignition agent called lightning that doesn't need people. So fire has been here as long as those three elements are around, those three ingredients. Mm -hmm. And they've been around as long as there's been vegetation. So Yeah, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> oh, and, you know, you know there, there's no vaccine for wildfire. <laughs> so, you know, you know, one punchline is... You have to learn to live with fire. It, it's not going to go away. Yeah. We have to learn to live with it. Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great tie-in to like this whole conversation that we're having, right? With the, this whole, this whole, whole thing came about because of the, the podcast series you put out with CBC, World on Fire, which was awesome. Like it was, <laughs> it was something that I, you always hear people, I, I remember being approached a couple of times about doing something like that. And I'm like, I don't have the 
Like you want someone better. <laughs> you want someone with higher production value. And I'm glad that they, they that you guys went with the CBC because it was a perfect. It was what a six part, five part series. It's five part. Five part. Um, you know, I have to give credit to CBC Radio, CBC Edmonton. They were great professionals. Um, you know, I just co-hosted and helped out a bit. I played a fairly minor role, but I'm really quite proud of that effort because it's really quite informative, mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully lots of people are listening to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I spend a lot of time with the media, and people say, well, why do you do that? I said, well, you know, the way forward is to have an educated, knowledgeable public, okay, mm-hmm. so we can make informed decisions. And the way you do that is by sharing what you know about fire and weather with them. So yeah. that's why I think, I do these things is because they're important. Yeah, it was. A, it's a great series. Like it really is a great series. The, the the just the way you guys put it all together, so that it, it describes from someone that knows nothing all the way up to like more complicated ideas. Like it was. It was really really well done in describing the new paradigm that we're living in. Right when it comes the new to reality. Yeah, a lot new, of people like to say new normal, and I always say no 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 no. It's this nothing about this is normal. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't want it to be continued to be normal. Yeah. No. So I always say new reality. Okay? Yeah. New yeah. paradigm's fine as well, but paradigm sounds just bigger somehow. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds more important, like you should pay attention. <laughs> but what I wanted to talk to you today about that we'll we'll get into is how do we go forward with this new reality? So but to start things out, I want to talk about let's talk about this new sorry, new reality. That's what you want. Yeah. Uh I want to talk about the situation we find ourselves in in regards to fire, but I want to talk about it with just a little bit of history, just a brief. I want, I would like for you to go through what is the situation we're in, how did we get here, and then we're going to go from there. Yeah, sure. No, I, that's pretty close to my normal spiel. Right. Is, you so let's know. give you a normal spiel, I guess. <laughs> so in Canada, we burn about 2.5, 2.7 million hectares a year. And... And to put in something meaningful, it's about half the size of Nova Scotia. Burns every year. It used to be about 1 million hectares back in the late 60s and early 70s. So our area burned has more than doubled. Mm. And I attribute this and others largely to human-caused climate change. And I can't be any clearer than that. Uh, and the thing to recognize about fire, it's, it's about the extremes. So in Canada, 3%. Of these fires, burn 97% of the area burned. So it's a relatively small number of large, intense fires. Fort McMurray fire is an example of that. The Chuckay Creek fire is an example of that. Slave Lake fire is an example. So these fires happen on the extreme days of hot, dry, windy weather. Mm-hmm. And so if we see more extremes in the future more extreme fire weather, we're going to see more fire in the future. Right. And we've seen that happening. That's something, that's a trend that we're, that's been confirmed. It's not theory at this point. It's, we know it, right? No, it's, it's fact. Just like the globe's warming, Canada's warming at twice the rate of the rest of the globe and Northern Canada, about three times the rate. Mm-hmm. So the warmer we get, the more fire we have. And I get people ask me all the time, hold it, hold it. Why is temperature so important? Here I'm not talking about an individual fire, like the Fort McMurray fire. I'm talking about fire over a region, like Alberta, mm-hmm. over a longer period of time. 
like a month or a fire season. And so temperature is important for three reasons. And fire people love threes, okay? We, we just have this thing about threes. So three reasons. <laughs> the warmer it is, the longer the fire season. Yeah. And we're seeing that in Alberta already. Officially, our fire season now starts March 1st. It used to be April 1st. But because it's starting earlier, we now officially have moved it one month earlier. Mm -hmm. Second, the warmer it gets, the more lightning you see. Studies suggest for every degree of warming, you get about 10 to 12% increase in lightning. Mm -hmm. More lightning equals more fires, all things being equal. But all things aren't equal. Because as the temperature warms, its ability to suck moisture out of the fuel increases almost exponentially. Mm. So unless we have more rain to compensate for this drying effect from warming, we're going to get drier fuels. And this is really the critical part. Because if we see drier fuels, it's easier for a fire to start, mm -hmm. easier for a fire to spread. And it means that more fuel has dried out, which is available to burn, which means it's a higher intensity fire because more energy is being released, which means it's more difficult to impossible to extinguish. Okay. So a warmer world, drier fuels, more f high intensity fire. That's perfect. That's a nice, like, you've definitely got that down to a science, hey? <laughs> you've said it enough times. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my first interview or no. first rodeo. <laughs> and, you know, practice does make perfect. Yeah. Uh, it makes, well, I'll, I'll, I'll correct that. Practice makes permanent. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you not practice perfect. perfectly, it makes permanent. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was in grade school, I was petrified of public speaking, just absolutely petrified. And I'd stand up in front of the class and go, well, um, uh, <laughs> just, Same. and, you know, part of my job is to, uh, give lectures, mm -hmm. um, to give presentations. So as you become more comfortable with it, first, you know, the topic. Second, if you don't know it, don't say anything. And third, you know, is I, I try and think of it as talking to a friend like we're talking right now just one-on-one -on -one to someone i know and just relax and actually try and have fun with yeah. it okay because it makes it enjoyable and then that takes the stress away and so yeah. you know now i give lots of <laughs> webinars not so much in, in person anymore because of covid but i give lots of webinars but before covid yeah talk crowds 600 a thousand people it doesn't bother me anymore because Hey, I'm comfortable doing it. Confidence helps. If you know what you're talking about and you know that you know more than everybody else in the room, that's well, going to help. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that because some of these conferences have a lot of intelligent people who are as well-versed in fire as I am or right. better. So I wouldn't say that, but I'm comfortable talking to them about what fire. Right, for sure. No, Awesome. So the other aspect that I wanted to discuss about this new paradigm, new reality that we're in is – people coming to the Americas, right? And the like the fuel change that happened with that, right? So the, uh, by that, I mean the concept of fire suppression, right? And how yeah. that's changed the fuel load that we have on the land. So could you just go into that a little bit? Because I'm sure you have another similar spiel equally yeah. as perfect. So let's do that. No, <laughs> this one may surprise you a bit because the board, you, you heard this classic and it's kind of an American uh, phrase, fuel buildup. Sure. And fuel buildup means many things. You have to be, you know, a precise as to what exactly that means. Mm -hmm. And for certain ecosystems, mm -hmm. 
like ponderosa pine, that is an accurate term for fuel buildup, meaning that as we've suppressed fires, going from a parkland open savanna to a closed canopy forest and the ensuing fire and the impact of that has changed. Mm -hmm. In our boreal forest, we don't have a ponderosa pine situation. Yes, after a fire occurs, mm -hmm. it's unlikely to reburn the boreal for 15, 20 years. If it's wetland, it may be 60 years. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while for the fuel to restore so that it's flammable again, right. unless there's grass. If it's grass, you can burn the next year. Um, so the classic fuel buildup story that we hear from the, the states just does not apply to most of Canada. Parts of BC, maybe parts of the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, but for the main boreal, it doesn't really apply. So our our suppression efforts maybe have reduced the amount of fire in areas. Mm -hmm. And one has to keep in mind that, you know, we've seen this doubling of area burned during a period when fire management has become more effective and arguably covers more land than it did in the 60s and 70s. Okay. But yet, still, we've seen a doubling of area burned. Mm -hmm. But the way we manage fire is changing, okay? And uh, Parks Canada has been doing it for years, but now major... Uh, provinces, Ontario, British Columbia, they're moving towards what we call appropriate response. And I liken that to going to your local emergency room at, in your hospital nearby. You go there, if you have a cut, you wait. Mm -hmm. If you have a heart attack, front of the queue. So if a fire arrives and it's two kilometers from White Court, it takes a half second to say, that's an unwanted fire, hit hard, hit it fast, put it out. If the if the fire starts away from any communities or anything of value, then you do an assessment. You get a fire weather forecast for the next week or two weeks. You run a fire growth model and say, where might that fire spread? Mm -hmm. Then you assess or evaluate, will that fire be beneficial? I mean, there's many areas that have disease or pests, infested forests, where fire is actually a good cleansing agent. Right. So you say, okay, we'll allow that fire, we'll monitor that fire. Mm -hmm. And then the next day comes and you get a new weather forecast, a new fire growth forecast, and you do another assessment to say, what can we do with this fire? And you use natural fuel breaks like rivers, lakes, or artificial ones like highways to say, we'll allow this fire to come to this, this size. Mm -hmm. And you're allowing fire back in the landscape. It's important to realize that our boreal forests survives and thrives in a regime mm -hmm. of semi-regular, high-intensity, stand-renewing, stand-replacing fire. Yeah. Many of our species are adapted to this. Mm -hmm. uh, think of the pines, okay? As you mentioned, uh, many of them have serotonous cones, lodgepole pine, jack pine, black spruce has semi-serotonous. Serotonous means it's sealed with a waxy resin and needs heat for that cone to open to release the seeds. Mm -hmm. So you see a stand of jack pine, a fire goes through, you see another stand of jack pine. It self-perpetuates itself. So unless you start to see even more fire than what the forest can maintain, mm -hmm. i.e. cones don't reach sexual maturity so the seeds aren't viable, if you get fire every 10 years, no forest is going to survive that in Canada. Right.
Some people argue about what will be the last tree standing if we see too much fire, whether it's going to be conifers or deciduous, broadleaf. To me, it doesn't matter. It's like rearranging the, the chairs on the Titanic. Right. Uh, they will disappear, but what will replace it? Shrubs, grass, and they're much more flammable than trees. With grass, you can have fire every year. Mm -hmm. So fire is not going to go anywhere. No. The forest might. Mm -hmm. uh, now, some people say it might happen fairly quickly. Other people, well, you know, I, I'm, I think it's going to be a while before, you know, we get to that point. Mm -hmm. uh, our fire, our forest can take a lot of fire. We're starting to reach, you know, levels that, you know, we haven't seen in history for hundreds of years. So it is concerning. Yeah. But we've got a ways to go before I, I think we'll see our forest convert into shrubland or grassland for sure yeah yeah so um like the main the main story that i heard was uh from a few different people was was talking about more like the age distribution of the forest of so the boreal forest since colonization has has changed right so the, the the it would be that the uh so when settlers came here they started suppressing fires because they wanted the timber they wanted whatever um and more so when you know the 1950s hit or whatever and we got really into fire suppression and that's created because of that we've had less area burned for a long time so there was less just burnt area and therefore the that the boreal forest has become more homogenous over time and that the age class distribution is a lot of mature trees and that that is contributed to stuff like the pine beetle outbreak which has contributed to more fire which has contributed which has all been because of human interaction and is that that is true in your opinion or so you know how we manage the landscape is important yes. of course yeah yeah and you know when i say we're seeing you know more fire more impact from fire mm -hmm. climate change is part of the reason the other part is humans okay right, yeah. and how we manage the <laughs> landscape or or don't manage the landscape arguably climate change is also humans <laughs> <laughs> yes they yeah we're we're the the source for all this problem um, <laughs> hopefully the solution as well yeah and, and once we get going on it so age class it it does make a difference and as i mentioned you know the early age classes they're not nearly as flammable as you know once you get to 20 years of age and if it's a wetland a bog it takes a while for the trees to return it can be 50 or 60 years mm -hmm. and then we we need to know what kind of fuel we're talking about what kind of ecosystem and how susceptible it is to fire through time right and yeah so there are implications and if you have a monoculture um like we saw with a pine beetle outbreak that leads to all sorts of problems yeah and then and all this to say i'm just trying to point out that we've created this situation ourselves of lots of fire and highly flammable forests because of actions we've taken in the past that's kind of what the point i'm getting at is that we've we've created a situation that is quote unquote unseen before current times right so like this is not a historical it's part of the historical cycle. This is something new that's never existed before for a number of reasons, not just climate change, but also because we've stepped foot into the forest and decided to make it our own. But there are large portions of our, especially our boreal, mm -hmm. that are really untouched for by, sure. you know, 
there's Besides no commercial stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no commercial uh, forestry operations. Mm-hmm. There's very few communities, uh, and largely, many of the fire management agencies allow the fires or monitor the fires. And it's actually quite healthy to allow fire on the landscape, right? It's because yeah. you you create a patchwork mosaic mm-hmm. of some of those recently burned areas. So when you get those extreme conditions, mm-hmm. and you got a fire racing across the landscape, it bumps into one of these recently burned patches, and in the best case scenario, it goes out. You know, it may continue to burn, but it'll be lower intensity and allow fire management if they decide it's an unwanted fire, to put that fire out. Right. So by allowing fire, you get a lot of different patch sizes, which mm-hmm. is good for a number of reasons, uh, rather than these large, humongous patches of these l- extreme fires. Those 3% of the fires that burn, 97% of the area burned, mm-hmm. they're 200 hectares and larger, and many of them are much larger than that. Like yeah. The Fort McMurray fire was about 600,000 hectares, about the size of Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. One fire. Yes. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the point I was getting to is that we've kind of created the situation for ourselves where just kind of hedged our bets against ourselves by accident. <laughs> so the, the whole point of this conversation, the reason I wanted to talk to you was to start to try to suss out some possible answers to how we approach this situation and how we get ourselves out of it from both a protecting like human settlements standpoint, but also a, a, ecological standpoint right like how do we get back to what so if we if we have a forest now that is more homogeneous because of actions we've taken for whatever reason um versus what used to exist how what what is the forest we're aiming for so if, we, if right now we don't have a quote-unquote natural forest i don't i don't like yeah. using that word but i'm going to do it for the sake of this yeah. discussion um what kind of forest are we aiming for? Just so I know what we're trying to get to when it comes to land management and fire management. So I'm a fire guy, and I'm going to talk about fire. Yeah, that's what we're here for. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the forestry aspects I'm going to leave to the side. Sure, that's fine with me. And focus on the fire side here. So, you know, what can we – we have to learn to live with fire. So yeah. how do we – learn to live with fire so let's you know let's start with the three ingredients you know the fuels ignitions and weather so the day-to-day weather which really drives things you know we really can't do much about though from a human caused climate change point of view as a global community we can get our act together and do something about these greenhouse gases so we reduce the warming right okay but in the short term the day-to-day weather is what the day-to-day weather is Mm mm-hmm the ignition agents, there's lightning and people. So we can't do much about the lightning, mm-hmm. but people, every human-caused fire is preventable. And we're doing a pretty good job. So when I say, you know, every burn is doubled in Canada, it's primarily due to increases in lightning-caused fires in northern and western Canada. Human-caused fires and area burn has been decreasing. Mm. So doesn't mean we can can't do a better job fire bans forest closures Mm -hmm. education these are all good things and we should do more of them Mm -hmm. so at least fuel okay um we can't manage fuels across a vast boreal forest right Uh, 
The Americans spent billions it's a lot of area. <laughs> well, even in a small area, the Americans tried to do it in the American West and spent a billion dollars on fuel management. And Western United States area burns quadrupled, you know, or, well, depends what you include in Western, but California's four to five times increase in area burned. Uh so you know, obviously that did not work. <laughs> uh, but if you concentrate your efforts around communities, programs like Fire Smart, Fire Wise, mm-hmm. now it doesn't stop the fire by removing conifers and reducing fuel loads. When a fire does happen, it should be at lower intensity so it's easier for fire management to extinguish it. Building materials. There's lots of things and we are getting better, building homes back better. Mm-hmm. But perhaps we have to think of some areas we shouldn't build in. People love to live in the woods, yeah. acreages, what we call the wildland urban interface. But many of these areas are very fire prone. Yeah. But programs like Fire Smart, community planning, you know, sprinklers, uh, though with sprinklers, you have to have independent power and water because when a fire enters a community like it did in Slave Lake or Fort McMurray, municipal power and water are the first things to go. Yeah. So you have to have independent power and water. Sprinklers are very effective. Community planning, golf courses, baseball diamonds, soccer pitches, these are all green spaces. Green grass is a very good fire break. So you design your community so that they're on the outside of the community to be that buffer. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of things we can do. Evacuation, I see as a last resort. Yeah. Uh, Because it's fairly traumatic. And, you know, we should have community shelters for fire, for, you know, uh, heat waves, Mm -hmm. with air purification systems, built in materials like cement, something that's not flammable, so people can go there and wait the fire out. Right. Now, there are still people that will have to be evacuated because of health concerns, if you have respiratory issues because of smoke um, or other reasons. But to minimize the stress and impact on people, evacuation should be a last resort. Sometimes it's absolutely necessary. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So, so there's lots of things we can are doing mm. and there's lots of things we still can do better yeah yeah for sure do you think so if we're in this new reality and fire is going to be part of our, our our reality like even living in the middle of edmonton um a lot of summers we we get smoked out right and you get smoke all the time everyone can see their smoke from bc or smoke from wherever and it looks like it's the you know the middle of the night at 4 p.m um so i think everyone is becoming more and more aware of the existence of wildfires but i don't know i feel like it's become more of a a a fire it's been more of a like making fire the bad guy right and less of the we don't hear much about the good fire or the or the (laughs) or the you know what i mean (laughs) like that kind of stuff so i wonder how do we start to i mean obviously public education they got all the stuff but but how do we how do we really get people to start to understand fire from a perspective of you don't always have to be scared of it, right? Like it's a. So, so this notion that fire is bad comes yeah. from smoky. Okay. Smoky the smoky, bear. Yeah. Smoky bear. Not, not, a lot of people say smoky the bear, ah. but, but I was just corrected not long ago. It's smoky bear. All right. My and, bad. And I checked it up and yeah, they were right. It is smoky bear. Okay. <laughs> Lots of states. We'll forgive ourselves for that. <laughs> and smoky has a couple of messages. And one is that 
only you can prevent forest fires, which is a good message. But the other message is that fire is bad um, yeah. and that we have to stop fire. But fire is natural. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things did change with Yellowstone. It burned in 1988. And people thought, oh, a national treasure. It's, it's a disaster. But the Park Service, to their credit, said this is an educational opportunity. Mm-hmm. See the new forest coming in. See all the new flowers. You know, like mm-hmm. this is just the cycle of life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's part of the ecosystem. And it's actually healthy, natural. Yeah. And uh, we should be aware that fire is natural and at times healthy and beneficial. The thing about fire and the smoke is that, you know, for many years, fire was a rural issue, okay? It's something that happens up north or out, out in the bush. Yeah. Uh, your downtown, Edmonton, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, the likelihood of your home burning down to a wildland fire is almost zero. Yeah. And But you're right. There was a couple of years ago, we had the BC smoke here. I took I took a picture. Couldn't see across the river. The street lights came on during the day. I thought it was a thunderstorm. Walked outside. It was smoke. Yeah. <laughs> it was really thick. And the thing about smoke, it's can travel thousands of kilometers. And what we're finding is the older the smoke, the more toxic it is for oh, you. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, some, what is it about that? How does that happen? I am not a health person, so I don't understand <laughs> all of it. Or You're the fire ca- guy. Don't you have all the answers? No, no. That's <laughs> a great thing. I'm, you keep learning. Yeah. Um, there was a recent story about how toxic smoke is, and I don't understand all the chemistry, but it's not good for you, okay? Yeah, okay. Maybe it's because <laughs> the heavier particles fall out and only the finer particles, which are the ones that get sucked into your lungs, mm. uh, deeper in and, and stay there. So the more we find out about smoke, the more toxic it is. And the longer the episode, the more damaging it is. And the longer the episode the more likely the air quality inside your house will be as bad as it is outside. You know, when it first starts, they say, shut your windows, shut everything down unless you have an air purification system. And, you know, as a way, and don't go outside, don't exercise. Mm-hmm. But over time, that smoke gets in the house. And so it's it can be really bad and bad for your health. I mean, people don't realize that globally, there's about 330, 340. Thousand premature deaths due to wildland fire smoke, mostly Southeast Asia from peat fires. Oh, okay. Okay, where it's every year that you're exposed to it. Prolonged exposure is really bad. Mm-hmm. Episodes, they're not great, but you will recover. But yeah. it affects, uh, you know, the unborn child. It has a myriad of health effects. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not going to stray any farther because we're starting to get away from yeah. what I know much about, <laughs> other than fire. Smoke is toxic, and the more you breathe, the worse it is for you. So with climate change, we're going to see more fire. Thus, we see more smoke. Mm -hmm. So are we going to have to get air purification systems? And then there are people that say, well, we should be using more prescribed fire, more good fire. A little smoke now is better than a lot of smoke later. Right. I'm afraid we're not going to get rid of a lot of smoke. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. And I agree Using prescribed burning is a very useful tool and will prevent fires nearby. But when smoke can travel thousands of kilometers, indeed, smoke can travel around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, can oof. so fires in Alaska or Northwest Territories or Northern British Columbia, oof, you know, I don't see the day when we're going to be able to control 
how much fire is on the boreal forest. No. Right. So we are going to still have big fires in the future with big smoke episodes. Mm -hmm. So, you know. And there's always been big fires too, right? Always. Like you look at the 1918 fire, or was it the 1918 or? There was, there's a number of historical fires. Yeah, that big massive one by Lac Lac or whatever, right? That one that blew out into Saskatchewan. Chinchaga. Yeah. Or the Chinchaga one, too, yeah. right? And those you know, were... there's been massive fires right. in the past. Now, some of those were by settlers, mm-hmm. okay, uh, burning at the wrong time and having disastrous results with communities, loss of life. Um, and, you know, my colleague and I have written op-eds, Mike Watton, about, you know, will it take another one of these disasters to, to wake us up to, to get us along the right path here? Right. Um, We'll take another Miramichi or Fernie or Lac La Biche, you know, where there's been loss of life. I, you know, I hope it doesn't come to that. Hope not. But sometimes we need a bloody nose or two before we change our behavior. And uh, yeah, um, it's unfortunate. But I'm going to ask you to to go outside of your your expertise, just because this is it's something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, and I'm sure you've had discussions with colleagues about this kind of thing. And the role of media when it comes to perpetuating this idea of bad fire and and getting people to think a certain way um how like how how important do you th- or how uh not important but how big of a deal is that role and how do we start like if you if you think like i do that they're perpetuating that idea how do we start to change that or convince them to not be just be glorifying the the flames and actually start talking about everything about it, right? Start to try to educate instead of just being alarmist and trying to get those clicks. So fires are impactful. And, you know, there's a lot of media. It's a 24-hour news cycle, Mm -hmm. and they want the disasters, okay? The the hurricanes, the floods, the fires, okay? They they come, they go, you know, how many homes were lost, how many acres were destroyed, language, you know? (laughs) And going back to Smokey, it's very militarized, you know, water bombers, firefighters, mm-hmm. and indeed, modern firefighting in this country really ramped up after the Second World War yeah. with planes and aerial attack and things like that. Mm-hmm. So media, well, hopefully there's enough people, uh, fire people, talk to media and explain the situation and it gets airtime. But, you know, fire is... It's a great visual, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's got, you know, and that's what they love to show. And getting a message that, oh, you know, fire is beneficial can at times be pale compared to these, you know, graphic images of, you know, 100-meter flames, you yeah. know, burning communities. Uh, it's hard to compete against that. And, you know, they are important stories, yep. you know, communities burning and, and – but we just have to keep out there. And once again, education, and I'm a big believer in, you know, public education, you know, starting from grade three, grade six, have, you know, where you use math and other uh, disciplines and tie fire into it. So right. you educate people about, you know, fire's natural role mm-hmm. in the ecosystem. Yeah. And it's and like you said, those things are going to stand out. I'm sure they do do a lot of uh, a lot of uh, pieces after a fire talking about maybe some of the benefits or some of the mm-hmm. other roles, but they don't stick out in our minds like the like you said those four hundred foot flames or whatever <laughs> that you got. And it's so <laughs> it's visuals, I yeah. guess it just stands out in our head. But um, 
do you think there's like a responsibility on their end to be more? Because I think it could be done more tactfully, more. You know what I mean? Like it could be and, done. And some people differently. do. Like, you, you know, you don't want to paint the media with a broad brush. No, there's some really great stories, of course, and there's some really awful stories, yeah. and everything in between. All right, of course. And so when I talk to the media, I try and give them context. Yeah, you know, sometimes they just want. You know, the facts and numbers, but you said, well, no, you have to understand the bigger picture and how this fits in. Yeah. Right? So, and that helps. And some are very good at, you know, listening and wanting the full story. And Absolutely. others are, you know, they've got a hook and they've got a story and they want to run. Yeah. And, you know, you, you do what it's you can. It's always going to be that. I mean, that's like always will be. Yes. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's part of the, I think that's how most of the public understands fire is because of those stories. That's their entire relationship with fire is that fire and is the, bad and the yeah. smoke yeah. over the, over the city in the middle of summer. And so do you see, is there, yeah, I don't know when it comes to like educating the public, it's, it's tough because right? it's like, that's the answer to every, every problem we have in humanity. <laughs> it's a motherhood educate the public, yeah. right? Yeah. If we all just knew everything, everything would be fine. And it's like, well, that's not going to happen. So, no, <laughs> But uh, I guess we'll change gears a little bit. But so talking about more more of the of the of the landscape management instead of the the firefighting aspect of even the idea, like you said, right, the militaristic firefighting words versus I don't know uh, land management words, land management, management words, <laughs> yeah, management, land stewardship or fire yes. stewardship yeah. or something. Being good know. stewards, yes, yeah. Um, do you think that? Do you think that we screwed up when we started the like you said when when like when World War Two took off and like I understand the firefighting it was obviously we always need to do firefighting we always need to protect communities yeah we there's always a, will there's yeah. a zone that needs to be protected and all that yeah. kind of stuff um, but do you think like in the fifties when things really ramped up with with aerial bombing and that kind of stuff do you think we screwed up a little bit there or and you think there was there's there's room to to go to dial back that clock a little bit and try to undo some of that or do you think um, I'm talking about everything, like yeah. as far as as far as the the change in the structure of the forest, and also the change of the way we think about fire into being this demon that we need to control, right? Well, you know, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, so it's, it's easy to to you know be critical of some of the decisions they made. You know, there's no way we could have known that was going to happen. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I'm not demonizing those people back then they made those decisions for real reasons for good reasons and like you said hindsight is twenty twenty. we have the benefit of hindsight yeah, we let's do. let's uh let's go into it and see what we think <laughs> well, well there were progressive people around mm -hmm. that actually did see fire as natural and beneficial sure. in, in addition to you know aboriginal peoples have been using fire for thousands of years right. and we have a lot to learn from them and uh you know, your podcast series with Amy on Good Fire is an excellent example from around the world, uh, mm. you know, where people have been using fire for thousands of years and have been good stewards of, of the land. So the problem I see is that we thought we could eliminate fire. It it's just fell into the silo of fire is bad. We've got to put it out. We've yeah. got to stomp it out. Yeah. And to think that you can control mother nature is just ludicrous okay yeah. the only way you're going to do is have a firefighter behind every tree right <laughs> and, and that's not going to happen so what you know you know whenever there's a a war on noun you know, yeah. you know, a war on drugs war on fire whatever you want to say you know, yeah. like you're in trouble okay and yeah. uh so 
instead of trying to learning to live with fire, allowing fire on the landscape when and where possible, the appropriate response, what Parks Canada has been doing for, for many years, and I think the American parks were, were much in tune with that as well, when possible, where possible, allow fire to right. do its natural thing. Because that's the best. Yeah. You know? So how do we make those decisions? Like how do we, it's how, how do uh, how do we know when it's okay to let a fire go? Because that's the story I've been hearing from a lot of fire professionals, right? Is like we're learning how to let fires go and then get the ones we need to. But what is that realm of influence? Because you could say, well, that fire is 100 kilometers from such and such a town. Like if it gets big enough, it could take it out. We need to fight it. So where, how do you, how do we begin to create that, that, it's the, the appropriate response that I was talking right. about that Ontario is is doing, okay? And they're allowing fires to burn, okay? On the landscape, a conscious decision, evaluation process. Now, this year is a bit different with COVID because sure. yeah. a smoke causes suppresses your immune system, which makes you more susceptible to COVID. So... If in a non-COVID year, there was a number of fires in northern Ontario that they would just what they what they call being observed. Okay, they evaluate them, make decisions on you know how large to let that fire grow, or whether to put out right away, and it's been successful. Mm-hmm. And we have a newsletter with Canada Wildfire, and Colin McFadden has a, a great story on appropriate response, and I encourage everyone to to read it. And it has a, a much more depth uh, discussion of right. what it means. Now, that's great. Parks Canada's doing it. Ontario's doing it. Let's go to Alberta. It becomes much more complicated here mm. because there's so many values on the landscape. I had a graduate student, Lynn Johnston, and she did a master's on the wildland urban interface, the wildland infrastructure interface, the wildland industrial interface. You look at the map of Alberta, and there's not much land that's not disturbed with something. The industrial value, yeah, for sure. A value to someone, okay? And so if you let a fire grow to any size, it's going to bump into these. I'm not just talking about communities. I'm talking about pipelines, uh, hydro lines, uh, highways, farms, uh, you know, FMAs, forestry management agreements, all, all sorts of values on the landscape. Yeah. So it's much more challenging. And so we need to do more research on how to get more fire when we're appropriate on the landscape in landscapes like Alberta and California. In California, the fire return, how often fire occurs in the landscape in some parts of that state is like 15 to 25 years. Oh, yeah. That was that's natural. Yeah. How can we bring that back right. uh, over smaller areas? Yes, with prescribed burning, but over larger areas, whether it's now subdivisions, how how can we do this? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this is the world we live in, and it's still a challenge. It needs research by people smarter than me to sort this out. But large parts of Canada fall into what I would call northern Ontario, northern Quebec. <laughs> you know. Northern Saskatchewan, the territories, northern BC, northern Manitoba, you know, we can allow fire back in the landscape in many parts of Canada, but in places like Alberta, 
and the southern tier of the boreal, it becomes much more challenging. Are we, is Alberta really that unique when it comes to the like the in Canada? The yeah, for, really, it's more like a state, uh, oh. more like a developed state. It's, we probably have more development than Oregon or Washington, or comparable to Washington. And uh, huh, I didn't realize that there was that. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of oil and gas exploration in Alberta. There's a lot of cut lines and pipelines and such. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I didn't realize that it was that You different. take away the national parks. So, Wood Buffalo is a huge park. Right. Okay. So, fire management's the responsibility of the landowner. So, provinces, territories, uh, Parks Canada, and D&D in Canada. So, the Department of National Defense also does some fire management. So, they're responsible. Yes, uh, I'll send you the paper by Lynn Johnston and I, and there's maps. I'll sh- take a look at Alberta compared to the rest of Canada. It's quite obvious, and you know we can post it on the website. Uh, all, you know, as a side, I have pictures of that smoky day, and then taking a picture from the same location on a non-smoky day, and, and it's like day and night. Yeah. Right. Oh, big difference. Your cat's hilarious, by the way. So <laughs> I can take there. a break and let her out. She's not. She's outdoor cat. Sure, going that's snaky. fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, let her out. That's fine. <laughs> she's been sitting there just pawing at the door for a while. <laughs> yeah, I've been hearing it for a while. Disturb the train. Yeah, yeah. No, I feel like it's all good. I just thought he. he that yeah, he or she might want out because <laughs> she's been there for ten minutes. <laughs> anyway, so I yeah, think somewhere about there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah. So like the the whole idea of um trying to let it go, and like you said, Alberta is a little more more challenging than a lot of places. Uh, so the prescribed fire aspect of it, because like we hear about prescribed fire all the time and there's always there's prescribed fires going on all the time in Alberta. But they're, my understanding, it's a lot of small scale scale stuff, um, unless you're in the parks and that kind of stuff. You see some bigger, uh, you know, fuel reduction strategy stuff going on there. But um, do you think that that's a strategy that should be employed more or is it more is it harder to do now because of climate change and, and you know, the the weird weather that we got going on now? Like what's. It feels like we need to have more fire on. So if we have it controlled, that might be better than allowing. Yes. I don't know. It, it prescribed fire has its place. And when I started, you know, working fire professionally, late 70s, early 80s, there was lots of prescribed burning being done compared mm-hmm. to today. Mm-hmm. There were some very powerful lobby groups that didn't want smoke uh, and were very successful. Uh, carge associations in certain provinces uh, <laughs> had, you know, connections and pull. And when you say cottage association, that gives away the province because everywhere else they call it a cabin. <laughs> <laughs> well, even in part of that province, it can be camps or cabins, okay? <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so there's much less prescribed fire done. And there's a number of reasons because, well, we found out that smoke's not great for you. Uh, the burning windows, I mean, it's a Goldilocks problem. If right. it's too wet, you can't burn. Yeah. If it's too dry, there's wildfires and you can't burn. So there's that just right period, that Goldilocks period when yeah. you burn. And with climate change, maybe those windows are getting smaller. So there's less opportunities to burn. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the smoke. Okay. Mm-hmm. And places like Banff, uh, will not do prescribed burning within three kilometers of town because mm. of the smoke. And you can burn when there's good ventilation, but still there's been examples where smoke 
has crossed highways, uh, allegedly caused accidents, litigation. And then if you're responsible for prescribed fire program, program, you don't want to be in court. Yeah. So you're really, you know, <laughs> once burnt, twice shy. And sometimes there, you know, despite the best uh, practices, there are escapes. But we're kind of tying our own hands there again, right? Like I realize, obviously, there have to be a bigger decision made than the fire managers themselves. It has to be at a, at a you know, a, a governmental level to be like, hey, they can't help be held responsible for accidents caused by smoke because this needs to be done for bigger reasons, right? But obviously, that's a bigger discussion. But yeah, we need to start in any situation. I can imagine that a prescribed fire, even a prescribed fire that's gone awry, is going to be better than a, a completely unbeknownst uncontrolled fire that starts you know right next to town like fort mcmurray and then you know what i mean so i don't know this is it's it's not it's not i don't spend a ton of time thinking about it not like you spend your entire life but it seems like prescribed fire needs to be happening more it it does but in my view it won't it won't eh? it it won't the lobby groups the litigation um and there has been significant escapes like los alamos where uh, subdivision burnt down yeah, uh, and loss of life occasionally from these unfortunate escapes. Now, Australia has adopted a very vigorous policy of prescribed burning, Yeah, uh, very high targets of percent of landscape that they want to burn by prescribed burns, and they haven't been meeting them. And we saw what happened to Australia last year. So I would say that it, it's not going to prevent these bad extreme years. Uh, no. You're just overwhelmed. But using prescribed burning mm-hmm. in places to treat fuel mm-hmm. and, um, you know, around communities where possible, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when conditions are appropriate, but, you know. There's other options, too. Like, you could, there's, there's lots of fire sparring programs, but those are expensive in their own right. There's mechanical treatments. Blocks, there's grazing. Yeah. There's... You know, I often say fire is a multifaceted problem that needs a multi-pronged solution. There's no silver bullet here. There's, there's, of course not. We're, we're not going to have a simple solution to this, or we would have used it years ago. Yeah. So, you know, it'd be great if there was more prescribed burning, you know, and from an ecological point of view, I think that's great because mechanical treatment or removal of trees isn't the same as burning, okay? No, it, different. It's, it's a completely different process. No matter how hard we try to emulate fire and forestry, it's just it's not the same thing. <laughs> but largely because of the smoke issue, mm-hmm. I, I don't see it ever retaining, you know, the amount of landscape we were burning back in the seventies, sixties, seventies and eighties, early eighties. I, I don't see it happening. Hmm. So then because, I mean, like the number one thing you, you listed as being to help ourselves would be to get a hold on climate change kind of thing, right? Which is a – that's a big – obviously, that's going to take decades and decades. So, in the right. meantime, we need another way to approach this. And you saw the fire smart. Again, another yep. great prong of that to help reduce, uh, you know, homes burning down and, and that kind of thing. And, like, there's there's lots of great opportunity there. Um, but, like, on the landscape level, so if you don't think prescribed burning is going to come back – what what other options do we have as far as like a landscape level to try? And obviously, we're never going to be able to stop this, but we can hedge our bets. We can try to reduce some of the hazard, but as well as keeping in like 
with all this in mind, keeping the ecological perspective in mind mm. as far as habitat and everything else, that all the other values that we're trying to juggle all at once. So, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an impossible question to answer, but I mean, how would you, how do you see this world correcting peace. itself? Yeah. <laughs> like, how, how do you see this happening? So, yeah, I'm, I'm sounding like a broken record. Uh, appropriate response is really one of the major prongs here. Yeah. Allowing fire back on the lens when and where possible so it creates that mosaic that yeah. patchwork quilt all yeah. right that is one of the key all right so we have to focus on really getting like like on at the fire level we have to focus on figuring out which ones to let go and let them go as long as we can yeah and and yeah. these decisions I like that. That's great. E- evaluations you know usually went to unwanted fire yeah. that fire two kilometers from high level or slave lake it takes half a second to say Oh, yeah. You know, this, we don't want this fire. Yeah. So you hit hard, you hit fast, mm-hmm. and it's easy to put a fire out by experienced crew if the fire is less than a football field. Once, yeah. But once it gets bigger than a football field, and it's hot, dry, and windy, and the fuels are dry, and they're calling for fuels, now we've got a challenge. Okay? Oh, yeah, especially when you get a situation like Slave Lake where you got 100-mile-an-hour winds coming through, and you're just like, well, what are you supposed to do with that? It's a blowtorch. <laughs> but, yeah. So, so okay, that makes sense, and, that's, and, and detection of is very important, right? Because timing is critical. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you get to that fire quickly when it's small, so if you're the public and you see a fire, you you call us, okay, yeah. or star five 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 four fives in Alberta, and because you know most of the fires now are detected by the public, yeah, because many of the fires are stirred. By humans are near communities yeah. or where people are, of course. <laughs> so they get reported right away and actioned. For sure. So that evaluation process for the the, the non-obvious ones mm-hmm. takes a little more time. But as I say, Ontario has a 5, 10, 15-day fire weather forecast that will be done within a minute. And then they run a fire growth forecast within a few minutes. So within about five minutes – they're ready to make an evaluation of what to do with that fire, okay? Yeah. The unwanted one is like a split second. A lot right? of good data, yeah. So, you know, this is, I think, really the way forward. And, you know, to for the sure. credit, Parks Canada has been doing something akin to that for, for decades, okay? Right. But much smaller piece of the landscape, of course. Right. No, but that's 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 and that's kind of what I thought. I'm just I'm really upset to hear that you don't think prescribed fire is going to come back because it just seems like such an appropriate solution to a lot of the issues especially around communities and stuff where you can but like i understand there's the there's the risk there right as far as the the political issue there like it sounds like a political issue right um yeah it's it's very political yeah yeah and you have to think of tourism too okay yeah sure okay tourists don't want smoky skies all right sunsets can be gorgeous but i can't see that mountain or i can't see that you know yeah it's smoke is a serious issue and if you own a nice cabin or cottage or camp, you know, you don't want to be smoked out. If you're in a city, you don't want to be smoked out. Um, yeah. No. But the alternative is <laughs> your whole property gets burned to the ground. You're kind of like, well, yeah. the smoke is okay for a couple of days. <laughs> a little smoke but, now or a lot of smoke and flame later. Yes, I, I know. And, you know, I may be wrong, okay? But you know, I know my you reading of the landscape is in the short term. I cannot see it coming back. There's just yeah. too many that roadblocks, sucks. all right, to, to getting it forward in any large meaningful that sucks way. Because it's it's one of those things where I mean, fire has such a large firefighting has such a large budget. 
across the country, right? And it's about a billion dollars a year in Canada. Yeah. But, but in California this year, they're probably going to burn two to three billions. They're, they're building multiple millions of dollars a day on just direct fire management costs. Yeah. So it seems like it would be well invested into that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm, we don't have to keep beating a dead horse yeah. here. We're saying that prescribed <laughs> fire is not going to happen. It sucks. It's too bad. But along, along those same lines, though, you know, like we mentioned earlier, uh, indigenous cultural burning and that kind of stuff. Do you see? Do you see that? Like, I mean, we, the whole intention. I guess we should describe it a little bit here. Is that indigenous people have been burning on the landscape since time immemorial? Yeah. They say um, they have knowledge and experience, and they and they and they know what's going on. They do it for a lot of reasons, including ecological reasons, habitat, berry oh, picking, numerous reasons. Yeah, sixty, reasons. seventy reasons for yeah. burning. Yes, hunting, all yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. all kinds of reasons. Um, but they haven't been allowed to do their cultural practices for over a hundred years now. We stopped them, kicked them out of the the parks and stuff, and said, "No, you can't do that." And um, do you see a way possible for for that to happen again without them being held responsible by you know what I mean by by the government, by the colonial government? You know what I mean? Like this is a weird conversation to try and have because they see themselves as 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 uh, they're their own entity, right? They're right. their own nations. They have their own. Uh, their own things going on and we want them to be able to practice their their culture and when something like prescribed burning that we're too afraid to do if they can start doing stuff like that on their own ground that seems like perfect opportunity for a win-win when it comes to we want less hazard um they want to practice their culture right um do you see that becoming a reality and because i think right now a lot of them getting stopped is that they don't want to get put in prison for starting a wildfire kind of thing right i hope that we can move to that yeah. point where it's accepted and encouraged instead yeah. of discouraged. That that's I think also you know a solution mm-hmm. to you know more fire on the landscape is having it done by the people who have been managing it for thousands of years, and uh, we have a lot to learn from them. Mm. And we should be exploring that more. We are starting to explore that. We are. That's I, good. We being the fire community, um, yeah. I, I think there's much more we could be doing. Sure. But it becomes a very political issue because <laughs> totally. their land base, you know, is now much smaller than what it was before we came here and took their land, basically. Yeah. And uh, so what they have now is a you know, very small piece of what they used to have. Yeah. You know, we're in Treaty 6 here and... Uh, so, yeah, it's just, it was just a it, more of a question of like. So you do see progress. You see progress. In the, I in see progress. Yeah. It's it for some people it's probably slower than they would like. Of course, yeah. But politics it can either be a step function when a disaster <laughs> happens and things change, right? Or it's it can be a gradual process, and this is obviously a gradual process, mm-hmm. and you know it. You have hope, but do you have? Do, I, I have do you hope. Do you think yeah. we'll get there? Like, do you think we'll we'll get to a point where we can, where I, like I, our culture, like you know, white culture, the colonial culture, trusts that the indigenous folks can can do with the cultural burning the way they want to do it? And and because I mean, if you talk to Amy, like Amy, yeah. Amy uh, Christensen, um, she talks about she's like people have this fear of indigenous folks do, burning because they think they're this fire is going to get out of hand, and they're like, no, we're doing this is small scale. 
burning that that's very controlled it's not like someone's lighting a match and going home it's so there's it's very controlled the same as a prescribed fire it's just for different purposes and different meanings but um it's a cultural acceptance thing but that, that's the main point i'm trying to make is that is the fire community is aware of this is you think is it, is it, it's coming around people are starting to understand it more people you think are there learning will be more. eventually be acceptance I think there's acceptance now in many quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's back, you know, there's a couple of threads through this conversation back to education. Yeah. Like, like we need to learn more from their experience. Yeah. And w- we are going down that road mm-hmm. with still early days, but I'm hopeful it's that it will happen. <laughs> Will, will it be next year? Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> will it be next decade? That'd be great. You know, will it be in my lifetime? I hope it is. Right. Okay. So you're hopeful and, and optimistic as well? Like you. I hope there's one thing optimistic is like if you see it happening eventually, whether it's decades from now or not, that's a good thing. Or Because hopeful can be. <laughs> so I'm an optimist, all yeah, right? Same. Despite <laughs> the climate change and my pessimism about <laughs> using prescribed fire as an option, not that I don't think it's good, I just don't think it's going to happen in the near term, is because I think people can change. People have changed, yeah. okay? People do and change, yeah. And, you know, I can give you an example, a non-fire one, but an example of human behavior changing. When, you know, I'm of the age when I was in high school, you know, many decades ago, Drinking and driving was accepted. No one thought too much about it at all. Okay, now you go to high school and ask high schoolers, uh, "What do you think about drinking and driving? Are you nuts? Are you crazy?" This is great. You know, it's you know that's forty years. Things have changed. Cultural changes. Yeah. 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 So seatbelts, fires can change. (laughs) So our, our the way we deal with fire can change too. No, I I think I think you're right too. I just I would I wanted to know from your perspective, it being in the fire world, right? What what the conversation is going on out there, and and if you see it's going to happen, because it just yeah, it seems like a win win. Why not, right? Yeah, it's it's probably a win win win. Yeah, if we do it, so if, so we have to. And there are examples from California where that some indigenous peoples are doing burning, okay? yeah, and fully sanctioned, all right? And yeah. that's great. We should have similar programs. And I'm not aware of all, as you see, once again, it's up to the landowner. And, you know, so what's done in Alberta versus what's done in BC and what's done on their own territory versus, you know, so. There's a lot of politics. It's all oh, politics. I yeah. know. It's just. It, the, it's even, a quagmire. Yeah. Well, even for, for us, like two white dudes sitting on a porch, <laughs> you know, and trying to figure out trying to even bring up the concept of First Nations people, like yeah. you tense up a little bit. You're like, don't say something dumb that can be incorporated incorrectly, right? Like yeah. it's just it's just a stressful because you want to be good. You want to promote good things and, 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 and healthy communities and you want to be – Promote, a, encourage, foster. Yeah. And listen to Good Fire. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Here, here's another plug. <laughs> listen yeah. to Good Fire. Learn. <laughs> yeah. That was a fun. I learned a lot at that that podcast series. Good Fire was awesome. Like it was it was a good opportunity for me to learn a whole ton just about about uh, indigenous culture in general, not just fire. But um, I, I started. I recently just this is a total digression, yeah. but I started doing that that free U of A. Yes, in, yes. Indigenous. Uh, what are they, what is it called? It's it's a course about indigenous massive culture online. Yeah, yeah. It's massive yeah. and it's yeah. free. And it's yeah. it's it's really cool. I just I only did the first module, but even in the first module so far, I did it last week. I learned so much cool stuff. So many cool takeaways from that. Just 
of insights into their culture and the way they think about things when it comes to stewards of the land, mm-hmm. right? Um, and one thing I took away was that we're not owners of the land. Right? We don't own the land. We're borrowing the land from future generations. That's a cool way to think about it. We're borrowing this land from future generations. So we're using it, but we have to be mindful of future generations and that kind of thing. And the other thing was, this was from actually from an elder that I heard secondhand. And it was, uh, we are not managing the earth. We are the earth managing herself. And I'm like, that's a, that's an awesome way. Cause like, as, as like, you know, as, as, our culture, our Western society, we tend to think of ourselves have dominion over nature and we can start to think of ourselves as we are of nature. We are part of it. We are one way in which the universe knows itself and can act on itself. It's to start to change public perception in that direction. It just seems a cool way to go. There's so much to learn from them, right? Like just, we're, that we're ancestral just one knowledge. part of a massive <laughs> interconnected system. Yes. It's cool. Yeah. It's super cool. So I wonder, um, some recent conversations I've been having um, with foresters and, so, and some other folk around what needs to be added to like the education system as far as, like for forestry, we were talking about foresters need to become, or forest professionals need to become better communicators. And that's communicating not just with First Nations people, but with the public and just better communicate. That needs to be, needs to be part of our training and it's not, right? We tend to see ourselves as, well, I want to be in the bush. I'm going to go hug a tree and that's my <laughs> that's my job and I don't like people, right? Or whatever. So when it comes to fire, do you think there's opportunities there to expand? Because right now, my understanding would be that fire would be a lot about, you know, uh, fire ecology and, and firefighting and then fire weather. And there's a lot of the science, the, like the Western science behind what to do with fire. But then is there much talk about the social aspect? Cause that seems to be when all these environmental kind of issues seem to run up against that same problem and it's the public perception thing. Right. So do you, do you see that as being something that needs to be added to fire education? Absolutely. Social is really important. And I'm a physical scientist. <laughs> right. So, you know, you've already had chats with Amy and Tara McGee, University of Alberta would be, if you haven't interviewed her, she'd be great. Oh, yeah. She's worked on evacuations and the trauma associated with that. And, you know, social science is something I'm pretty ignorant of. So I'm not going to say too much other than to acknowledge it's really important. Right. Yeah. It just seems to be something to me that's it's been kind of the thing that we're running up against that like, Hey, public perception and public understanding of what we do matters because we can be pushed to the wayside. If the public decides we're not doing our job, if they don't know enough. Right. Um, or if they misunderstand the information they've been given. Right. So it seems like one of those things that maybe would help benefit the cause of environmental management in general, pretty much all aspects. If, you know, communication and, you know, so the social the social aspect of it took a bigger role. It seems like, like you said, the exciting stuff is is learning the physical stuff, and it's it's fun and it's exciting, yeah. and you learn new things, and you can explain stuff about the world, and it's Fire and the social aspect yeah. takes it back seat. It seems right. So, yeah, it, historically, yes, I, I, I think things are changing in that realm as well mm-hmm. um, for the better. And more uh, investment in social sciences, including in fire. And, you know, we still have a lot to learn. Yeah. And, but we're 
starting down that path. Okay, we are. I think things are getting better, and I don't think it's just rose-colored glasses okay? <laughs> because we're going through a, a pandemic right now. It's, <laughs> it's it's easy to throw away those rose-colored glasses these days. For sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's an interesting issue. The pandemic on another level, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's this idea of fire. It's just it's wildfire and, and living with fire and learning to live with fire. It's always been something that's been fascinating, and then talking about you know, how we've gotten ourselves into the situation and how do we move forward? Like you said, it's a multi-pronged thing. There's so many directions parts, to go yeah. with it, right? Um, but yeah, I see, I don't know, I, I, I see us as, as a human species, we tend to accept these challenges head on and we tend to, we tend to figure them out eventually, right? But it's, we have to do it <laughs> a little swifter now that we've created a, uh, yeah, we kind of wow. hit the, the, the fast-forward button on the climate. <laughs> well, yeah, and we do learn. There's bumps along the road. and But, you know, people are right. There's no planet B here. So, uh, you know, we have to take care of what we have. Yeah, and, for sure. And we have to do a better job. Yeah. So any any kind of final thoughts that you have in regards to fire or, like, advice for, for, for people listening on on you know, how to start thinking about it, how to start talking about it, maybe what to do. I mean, everyone should start Fire Smarting. Go to the Fire Smart website, check that out. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. and we have a website with lots of resources and newsletters, which mostly in plain language, so that you, know, you don't have to be an expert to read and understand what's being communicated, and that's uh, CanadaWildfire.org. And, uh, you know, there's one aspect we haven't talked about, and the potential for amplification fire amplifying itself because of climate change okay so what's going on here is you know i've argued the warmer it gets the more fire we see right right. at least in boreal and temperate region you know globally we're actually area burns been decreasing recently it has okay okay mostly due to uh conversion of savannah to agricultural land in africa okay and other policies in africa but in our area, we've seen more fire, and we'll probably continue to see more fire as the climate changes. So the warmer it gets, the more fire we see. The more fire <laughs> we have, the more greenhouse gases are released. The more greenhouse gases means more warming, which is a kind of amplification, okay? Right. And in particular, peat. Okay? And we haven't talked much about peat, but peat is a carbon reservoir, a carbon bank, Legacy carbon, it's been building up over thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And now with the warming and drying, it can be burnt in a matter of hours or days and right. be put into the atmosphere. Yeah. And how significant are peat fires? Well, during a bad fire year in Indonesia, scientists estimated about 20 to 40% of global fossil fuel emissions were released by those peat fires. Our peatlands in the boreal forest of Canada, Alaska, and Siberia is 30 times greater than Indonesia. So it could be significant. And then we get into things like the permafrost thawing and releasing hydrates, okay, Uh, methane primarily, and which is a very effective greenhouse gas, 20 or more times more effective than uh, carbon dioxide. So... This could be a real a runaway train. Eventually, it will stop because if you bur- once you burn all the carbon, you know all the peat, you it's know th- that's gone. Okay, yeah. um, but in the short term, it could be quite a significant pulse. 
So is fire a warming or cooling agent? Well, that would be a, a warming factor. But there are other factors. The albedo, the reflectivity changes with fire that often leads to a cooling smoke causes cooler temperatures less solar radiation reaching earth so there's a number of checks and mother there's this there's a solution right there we just smoke out the atmosphere and we're good to go <laughs> geoengineering it's called and it, it won't work <laughs> or it might lead to a bigger disaster than we all right Don't say. <laughs> so you know these are things that we still wrestle with and but you know the key is we got to address human-caused climate change. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize, if we stop producing greenhouse gases today, we're going to continue to warm for the next 50 years yeah. because there's a lot of lags in our climate system and the ocean system, which is a very important player in the climate system. Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue to warm, you know, regardless because of this lag. Yeah. So, yeah, fire could be feeding more fire through this warming effect it's funny how every conversation i have tends to go back to climate change at some point <laughs> yeah it's it's it's, it's the all-encompassing conversation right like it just it involves everything everything it's that cross -cutting. we do yeah, yeah. it's cross-cutting issue every decision we make in our day-to-day -day lives has an effect on it and it's just yeah it's everything right it's just uh, people are gonna get climate change warmed word out here soon <laughs> i think it's already happening anyway. yeah <laughs> no kidding uh well i have to thank you for taking the time to do this this is great we uh yeah, we covered hard. a lot and it it was i think it was a good kind of clarified some of the thoughts in my mind about where we're headed and where we might go and again it's unfortunate to hear that <laughs> about the prescribed fires not being a thing it let's hope like i'm wrong solution, okay? but i have been wrong <laughs> well no maybe maybe you will be but i, yeah, I feel like you're, you're you're in that world you probably know i i, I trust your opinion and it's yeah. i and it makes sense when i think about it but um it's good to hear optimistic that things will things will turn Overall, out in the long yes. run <laughs> yeah. in the wrong that's yeah that's that's my hope yeah for sure so thanks a lot man this is yeah. great Thanks a lot for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a nice overview of kind of what's happening in the world of fire right now and what we can expect the future to look like and maybe how we need to start changing the way we think about it. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you liked it. Um, make sure to rate and review. Share with your friend. Tell your family. Uh, if you liked it, I would love it so much. That's the best thing you can do for me is just share this thing. Get it out there. I appreciate it. Another great thing you can do for me is to subscribe to this podcast. That means that if you're listening to it on the website, go into your app, your podcast app. So it might be Apple Podcasts if you have an iPhone, it might be Google Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, whatever it is. Go into there, listen to the podcast through there and subscribe to it so you know when the next one's coming out and you can get all kinds of new great information about what's going on in the world of environmental management. Feel free to shoot me an email. If you guys have any questions, yourforestpodcast at gmail.com. I can ask Mike. You can ask me. Whatever you want to do. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time.